Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Bill Worsemer is an audit principal with Miller Cooper. He specializes in M&A due diligence and transaction support in diverse industries. His clients include middle market companies, private equity groups, entrepreneurs, and financial institutions. Mr. Worsemer has written several books, including the Miller Manufacturing Distribution and Retail Guide for Walter Kluwer and hundreds of articles. He's a frequent speaker and presenter at various organizations and universities. He's got a graduate in economics from Northwestern University is a graduate fellowship in accounting from the University of Illinois. He's also serves as the Midwest chairman of the AM and AA. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Yes. Thanks so much, Corey. And it's wonderful to be here. I greatly enjoy your show and it's quite an honor to finally be a guest. We're very fortunate in that in the beginning when I was calling my clients and friends and saying, hey, can you be on the podcast? But now we've got long list of folks reach out to us. We feel very blessed that we're happy to have you on. Listen, before we hop into our topic, I mean, you have so much experience in the M&A side, on the accounting side, and that's what we're going to talk about in terms of doing due diligence. I want to take you back, though, before we get to any of that, to when you were a little kid, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old growing up. What did you want to be? Because my guess is you know, any specialist who focuses on due diligence in M&A probably wasn't it back then, but you tell me. You know, it's interesting you ask that because I don't think there are many little kids who want to grow up to be an accountant. I don't think that's the top of the list. I think at one point I wanted to be a fireman, let me put it that way. But one thing that you find is a recurring theme over the years, if you really grow to enjoy the type of work that I do, is that you like to investigate things. You like to understand how do you obtain evidence? How do you know that somebody has done something? So for example, there's a cable show called The Forensic Files, which is all about trying to look at evidence and trying to construct what actually happened. And in a way, if that type of analysis is of interest, I mean, that you get excited about doing that type of thing, you may very well, as I am, be well suited to do due diligence work because in the end, it is forensic accounting. You are questioning what you're being given, what you're being told, and you're looking for comfort behind the numbers that you've been presented on behalf of your buyer, or if you're on the sell side, trying to help them uh, present in the best way, the information that they have as well. Yeah. I know when I was a kid, I was really into detective, uh, like I read all the Sherlock Holmes, well, actually all the Hardy Boys stuff. And then even I ran out of Hardy Boys. So I started reading some of the Nancy Drews. And back then, the gender separateness was a lot more distinct. So it was always the girls who read Nancy Drews and the boys, the Hardy Boys. But I was so into those sort of mystery little child detective things. Were you into any of that stuff when you were a kid? Oh, you bet. And 
And Corey, it sounds to me like you may have missed your calling, but, <laughs> but you might have had a lot of fun doing what I do. But absolutely, yeah, those types of things are interesting to me. And in the end, it's, it, this is the financial aspect of that. You're not trying to solve a crime here, but rather you're trying to get to the bottom of financials. Yeah. One other question, looking back, what was your first deal of any type? It could have been something when you were young. It could have been early in your career. What was the first deal you remember being involved with? Wow. Yeah, well, that goes way back. And when I was growing up in my career, I was only ancillarily involved in deals. So I started as an auditor at the firm, and I actually developed a little bit of a consulting practice in manufacturing on the side, doing cost accounting studies because at the time activity-based costing had come out. I was actually one of the original authorities on that subject. So when I started becoming involved in deals, it was due to my inventory and costing expertise. So first deal that I worked on, I'm sure it's hard to distinguish them, but I'm sure it involved some intricate cost accounting where I was asked to come in and evaluate what the company had done because I did that for our clients. I would get consulting projects. I do a phase one, say, for a pittance fee and with the idea that I would get more work to the degree that I identified deficiencies in the system and therefore would be able to provide them with consulting expertise. But the good news about developing that type of background was that it served me very well later when I started in due diligence because if you look at a cost accounting system, a lot of times you don't have familiarity much less the type of work that I did, which was to identify deficiencies in those systems, you can find it very confusing and spend a lot of time and not get a lot of results. So that type of background really served me well in manufacturing particularly, but now I find that it helps me in all industries because it's a little easier to step down from manufacturing than to step up to it because other industries, cost accounting is less developed and frankly, less intricate. There is less going on, but today I enjoy applying that knowledge to contractors, to professional service firms, to software companies, media companies, really across the board, all sorts of companies where that type of analysis, looking at, well, you know, for example, someone presents you with a profitability by customer, being able to look what's beneath that data and determine whether it's truly being presented a reliably accurate way rather than some type of broad brush or estimate, which unfortunately is a lot of times how people present. Love it. All right. So I'm going to back on episode 234, which actually released shortly before we're recording this, but it'll be several months before this comes out. So for listeners, they'll have to go back a few months to episode 234. I actually did a little solo cast on due diligence, not anywhere near in the detail. We're going to talk about it with Bill. But it really was just triggered off of an article I read on a company that there were fraud claims made against this founder. And, you know, we've seen it over and over again, right? Whether it's Theranos or, I mean, Enron uh, going back or whatever. But this one was interesting to me. And maybe I'll um, kick it off with that and just ask you, Bill, some thoughts on it. Because the scenario on this, I mean, it was only off an article, so I don't know all the details. But the scenario on this was apparently it was a school prep kind of company. They were supposedly making money. So it wasn't like an internet pre-revenue company. They were actually charging for their services. They ended up raising a chunk of money and then they got sold. And then after the sale, after the fact, they apparently discovered that they had significantly overstated the numbers of clients they were serving effectively. When I said on the solo cast, I was sort of wondering, and I just used that as a kicking off point to talk about the importance of due diligence and how, frankly, sometimes in deals, there's always this balance between depending upon size of deal and budgets and things like that and timing and pacing, whatever. 
right? I mean, there's almost an unlimited amount of due diligence you can do on a deal, right? At some point, you got to make some decisions. So that was the topic. We'll get back to that sort of conversation later. But what I was wondering on that particular scenario, and I know you weren't involved in it, so but it just seems strange to me that this is a company that was overstating the number of people it was serving, but it wasn't a pre-revenue company. So there should have been a dollar amount, right? An average cost per service or whatever they did that should have tied into revenue. It was difficult for me to understand how sophisticated investors, we're talking about tens and millions of dollars, and I think it was a hundred something million dollar purchase, could have missed that due diligence. You know, how does that stuff happen? Well, first of all, <laughs> let me back up a little because in terms of fraud, certainly that is rare for me to yep. find someone who's intentionally trying to defraud someone. What's far more common and what I find practically 98% of the time is various misstatements in accounting information. And it could be due to a lot of things. Like, for example, you're trying to sell your home and you're telling people about what a wonderful school district it is and how great, how easy your property is to maintain. There's puffery and there's always choices in terms of how to present things. So they may individually be a material, but add up to a lot. So that in the end, I, my findings are certainly less earth shattering than finding out and out fraud. But in terms of the case that you're referring to in a lot of these other cases, there are metrics that are, people are applying, for example, to startup businesses. And one reason they apply those metrics is the companies may be pre-EBITDA or they may even be pre-revenue. So people want some way to measure their success. And so when you talk about the number of clients or how close clinical trials are to producing a good result or whatever the claim being made is, those are non-financial metrics. And the difficulty with that data begin with is it's not subject to the accounting controls and reconciliations that data from financial reporting systems are subject to. And I find over and over again that a lot of times things that are presented, unfortunately, and they may be done honesty as accurately as people think they're presenting them, a lot of times they don't relate to the actual underlying financials or they need to be reconciled. I'm involved actually, and I obviously can't disclose details of this, but I have been called in as an expert witness in a dispute that relates exactly to that topic. What happened was the company was unable to produce books and records during due diligence. So the buyer relied on a gross profit report. Now I know from being an accountant and having the background that a gross profit report nine times out of 10 will not agree to the financial statements. And there are various reasons for that, because for example, Costing is built on assumptions, whether it's LIFO, FIFO, or standard cost, or actual, or average, or moving average. There are a lot of assumptions made, so there's inevitably going to be differences. And there are also allocations, for example, the freight and duty, the inventory, that where it's not specifically applied. So there are just so many things that go on that I would never expect the gross profit reports to agree to the financial statements. However, in the case that I'm working on, it was all the buyer had to work with, and the seller was prepared to rep to its accuracy. But what do you know, post-closing, it turned out to be inaccurate. It simply wasn't right. The Actually, the seller had not even costed out certain items that were aggregated into that report and did not disclose the details to the buyer. So it can be very significant. I mean, when you're trying to rely information outside the financial reporting system, you know, whether it's even a gross profit report, much less the number of clients, 
that data is immediately suspect. I, I shouldn't say suspect, but needs to be subjected to special scrutiny because it's not something that's produced out of financial records that are reconciled, auditable, and subject to the rigors, what I call double entry bookkeeping, <laughs> which is the classic background for accounting. Yeah, and it's interesting because I talked about it a little back on the SoloCast. Like in the Theranos case, obviously their thing was the viability of their actual process and product and the fact that they were faking the results, but also using conventional means. That's not something that anybody in the financial, legal, or whatever due diligence side is going to figure out. You'd have to get scientists in there who would be able to test it. So I get that. In this case, in the news, though, what's interesting to me is these weren't pre-revenue. So you would think that the number of customers they had time, so whatever the average cost of their services were, would translate into financial numbers that you should be able to match up, right? If you say you've got 10,000 customers and your average revenue per customer is X, you should be able to do some math. But if it's not lining up with the financial statements, then yeah, at least trigger a closer look at the number of users they're claiming. And this time, I'm not going to say the gun, Corey, that you missed your calling. I'm not going to say that. What I'm going to say is that you're such a brilliant person that you could have been a wonderful due diligence person. So if you had wanted to, <laughs> so, although I'm sure the calling that you chose was the best one for, for you, but you could have been, because that's exactly what you described is exactly what I do. When I am first given financial statements or information, I'm looking for red flags and red flags would be things like you're describing. That is outliers or relationships that don't make sense. And that's how I identify risks when I start out in due diligence and construct a program to address those risks. So it's exactly that type of mindset. You're given something and you're questioning it and you're saying, I guess it's called in the profession, professional skepticism. That's what it's called. So when you see something, when you're presented with something, you're immediately trying to tie it to something else and see that if it passes the smell test, so to speak, does it appear to be accurate or not? And if not, it may well be a, an area of risk that you specifically want to address and you might want to do more work on. Ultimately, how I think about due diligence is it's like poking your fingers at a wall. And if part of it caves in, well, those are the areas that you exploit. But otherwise, you have to limit yourself to probing because there's no way that you're ever going to look at 100%. And probing is an art. Our probing to find the issues is an art form. It's not something that you can do out of school. You know, so for example, I work with a lot of private equity groups where, you know, these are folks with MBAs from major universities. Many of them, I actually, I guest lecture and due diligence to their classes. So I get to know a lot of them before they even graduate, but they're coming out of those schools. They can do wonderful financial models, but when it comes to forensic due diligence, that's something that they acknowledge, even they, as brilliant as they are, acknowledge that it requires an extensive background. It's something you have to learn by doing. So for example, our, I should say that Miller Cooper's a 500 person firm. We're a full service accounting firm and I grew up as an auditor. And our audit staff, before we will let them in charge an engagement, usually has to spend a good five years working on various audit engagements, other folks, in order to develop to a point where they can in charge an audit engagement. And of course, an audit engagement in many ways is less intense and due diligence is because usually with an audit, we've been doing it for years and people have gained familiarity working under other people and before they're given an in-charge role. So with due diligence, it, I'd say you require even more experience in order to do it effectively. And that's why it's important to bring in folks to do it. And I mentioned that I guest lecture to MBA programs and a lot of the students are just willing, I are very eager to learn, well, how do you do this? I want to learn how to do it. And it's kind of like, 
I'm not here to tell you how to do it. <laughs> right. I mean, if it were that easy, you know, I mean, we could do a course and you'd be done. It isn't. It's, it's something you have to learn through experience. And people, as I say, in the industry acknowledge that. People that are employing me realize that there's a value to bringing me in to do the work. Yeah, so interesting. A theme I raised that I mentioned in the solo cast that you said something I'm interested in your view on it because you've done it in the deal context, the M&A context so often. You gave this example of this one firm that where they had trouble getting more detailed due diligence from the seller and they ended up relying upon, right? Gross numbers, gross revenue, you know. So that was obviously a decision because their other choice could have been to push for more due diligence, more detail, right? Or choose not to do the deal if they couldn't get it, but they decided to go forward. And I'm not asking you that about that particular situation, but that sort of decision is a good example of what I mentioned in the beginning about the practicality of doing due diligence in a deal that has a certain pace, certain flow, certain desired closing date or outcome or timing. Maybe there's competitive bids for the company so that there's, there may be reasons not to slow a process. Talk to me a little bit about that dance, right? With the clients you work with. Mm -hmm. Any good deal lawyer, investment banker, principal understands that you got to keep momentum going on a deal to get it done, right? And it's why sometimes us lawyers get a bad rap because, uh, you know, <laughs> they're pretty competitive in for me because you got to be able to not artificially slow a deal down, but also still do your job. So talk to me about that dance and that balance and the fact that you could, my view is you could do due diligence forever, right? If you really wanted to, how many layers oh, down you want to go, right? Exactly. No, and it is all cost benefit in the end. In yeah. other words, can you spend the 20% to get 80% there or and so forth? That's really what it's about in the end. You have to be smart about your resources and identify risks and where you identify the need for additional work. But to answer your question, I think the entire industry has evolved over the years in accordance with what you're pointing out. Let me tell you why. When I started many years ago, there was no such thing as sell-side due diligence. Nobody knew what that was. Firms were scared of it because they didn't know who was going to hold them responsible. Uh, people didn't think they needed it. And yet what was happening was large private equity or middle market private equity or strategics were running from deals because sellers just weren't prepared. They didn't know it was coming. They didn't see what was coming. They never had an audit done, or even if they had had an audit done, it wasn't done with the buyer's needs in mind. The information that they were provided just was inadequate. And so people faced a decision as a buyer. Do I invest a lot more dollars into this to figure out if it's something that I still want to pursue? Or do I look at the five other deals that are similar to it that are in better shape as far as their information? And they would skedaddle. And so what has evolved over the last 10 years is sell-side due diligence. Again, it used to be something that was unheard of. It wasn't something that was done, but now it's routine. Once you're north of, say, 10 million in enterprise value, there's an expectation that uh, you'll have had a firm in there to put something together for you and also really to pre-vet out what you have, identify issues, work through them. I mean, to me, and I do about 30% of my work in sell side. I will go in and make sure that my client isn't blindsided. I mean, the worst thing that can happen is diligence starts and all of a sudden these questions are coming up. And for example, uh, inventory reserve, that was marked off and therefore that resulted in income and we want to deduct that from the EBITDA. It resulted in a deal actually before I got involved falling apart completely. There was no more deal because the seller distrusted the buyer. 
thought they were trying to pull a fast one on them and they just withdrew from the deal. I went in and as part of the South side diligence efforts was able to show that that reduction in reserve was actually more than justified by inventory write-offs, charitable contributions of inventory, but also negative margin sales in the subsequent year. So that the reserve actually became a non-issue ultimately, but it shows it's exactly what you're bringing up. You're saying, Hey, brokers, investment bankers, nobody wants to see their deal delayed or derailed or problems occurring. And yet a lot of times sellers will bring it upon themselves if they're penny wise and pound foolish and decide usually against their investment bankers recommendation to not have sell side due diligence reform because sell side due diligence is all about deal facilitation. It's all about, and not only that serving as a liaison when buyers due diligence teams questions come up, being able to address them, being able to answer, you know, knowing exactly what the buyer is looking for in a way that's cohesive, what is actually going on with the company and why they shouldn't be worried about this. Or if it is something that's troubling, you'll have an optimal solution already prepared rather than trying to come up with one after the fact. So it's a wonderful point that you made about the dance and so forth and about how diligence may create a problem. But as I said, the market has now developed, the industry has developed to a solution, which is the sell side. And, and I do plenty of it. So <laughs> I'd be happy to address that as well. No, and it, it really makes sense. And it's interesting. People listeners on this podcast have probably heard me talk about this before because we do the same thing on the legal side for our clients, right? And it's for the same reasons. And I always say to them, listen, right? Here's what you have to understand about buyers, right? Buyers make a decision that they want to eventually buy you because of what they perceive your company looks like, the value, everything, et cetera. And those decisions are usually made at some executive level, and then they're going to send in their due diligence team. Well, the due diligence team, whether it's the legal due diligence, the accounting due diligence, financial, whatever, the HR due diligence, whatever it is, the folks who do that stuff are looking for problems. That's their job, right? They're looking to find something. And the problem is if if there's smoke, they assume there's fire because they're always worried like they bring a downside individually, right? And the good ones obviously balance this. But my point is, especially if it's like an internal person, their bigger risk is actually the deal goes through, they've missed something and something goes wrong. That's a bigger risk for them than the deal not happening personally, right? So I always say you really want to be buttoned up. You want to, on the legal side, we talk about making sure all your contract extensions are in place, that everything's signed, you have the right addendums, everything's been filed properly, whatever it is we even tend to do. For example, sometimes clients say, well, why don't we just have the buyers do that? Well, again, you want to present this impression, you're on top of things. We'll pre-look at assignability issues or changing control issues in contracts, right? We know the buyer's going to be looking for that. So why not get ahead of that, figure it out? First of all, if this makes us look more impressive, but also if there's a key contract that it's going to be contingent that that's assigned, why don't we get out ahead of that and make sure that we're going to be comfortable with our ready to go to that party because we want to disclose it, but at least we know who we need to go to. It's the same conversation. So yeah, that sell side due diligence, not only from the accounting point of view, but from all point of views really makes sense. And Corey, I know you're too modest to point this out, but a deal attorney like you is invaluable, you know, because I've encountered situations, and I'm sure you have, where the family attorney is involved and... Mm -hmm. When you talk about bogging down a deal, it can become very cumbersome because items that often come up as issues shouldn't be issues. So that is a huge value that you add and certainly something to emphasize because not everybody would have said what you just said. <laughs> not every attorney would have known to emphasize those items that you just talked about. 
Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreykupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreykupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Well, listen, like you, we've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of deals. So I want to bring up a topic that's interesting and I've mentioned before. I've been doing this for 35 years and earlier in my career, seller is doing due diligence on that buyer, right? Especially if the buyer was a bigger company, like well-known company. Early in my career, there used to be a lot of pushback, right? They'd give some minimal information. They'd say, oh, where, whoever, right? Where IBM or where, right? What else do you need to know? And I found early in my career when Enron and WorldCom and all that stuff hit, it actually was a positive thing in terms of the ability to get more due diligence from big buyers. Have you seen an evolution on that side of due diligence? Where I see that most often is when the seller is reinvesting in a larger entity, in the buyer's entity. And I'm asked whether that's a credible entity. I'm asked to look at financials. I may even bring in my valuation group. So that's the main area. I think in addition though, I mean, where that plays a part is where the seller is concerned about his employees or his or her employees post-closing and whether they're going to be treated well, whether they're going to be in the right type of culture, et cetera. And I have seen, for example, as I'm sure you have, uh, private equity groups win a bit because they have a portfolio company already in the industry and the seller knows the company, likes the company, they will choose them over a higher bidding financial buyer. They know financial buyers have a different motivation. So I'm sure you've seen that as I have, but that's mainly when I talk about due diligence of the buyer, other than are they a credible buyer? Because you're going to find that LOIs, the high bidder may not always be able to close the deal. That's another aspect of buyer due diligence is just making sure that the buyer themselves are credible. All right. So one of the things I know that you're really on top of is latest issues, new diligence, things that are coming up, whether it's things that are check affected maybe by changes in the law or just what's happening in industries or the latest issues. So talk about some of the stuff that you're seeing or hot issues or anything that's interesting to for our listeners. Well, Corey, I'm glad you asked. I could go the next eight hours on this one, yeah. but, <laughs> but I'll try to keep it light and keep it high level because there are plenty of current issues. I mean, for one thing, EBITDA, everyone knows EBITDA. Well, EBITDA is the new one with the C for coronavirus, where you're trying to scrub out from those intervening years when we were all under the pandemic, how was the business impacted? And it can go both ways. That's I think right. clients coming out of the pandemic have a huge pent up demand, have record years, and you have to be concerned about that as much as the underperformance, because is the surge in performance sustainable going forward? So that's one of the issues. The accounting profession has shown us a lot of new stuff lately. <laughs> and the first one being revenue recognition accounting. This went into effect in 2019, although it was delayed due to the pandemic, if companies chose to delay it. But what it did, the new revenue recognition, is make overtime revenue recognition predominant form of revenue recognition. In other words, in order to get around using it, you had to prove you weren't subject to it. It was like the first type of revenue recognition you had to consider. 
And before this literature came out, it used to just be contractors and it used to be called percentage of completion. But now, as I said, everybody's subjected to it. So I'm seeing it everywhere. I'm seeing it not only in professional firms like ours, I'm seeing it in software companies, media companies, even custom manufacturing. These are all areas that are now subject to this type of revenue recognition. And how it works just briefly is you're taking, in order to recognize revenue, you're taking the total revenue you're going to recognize and you're prorating it over how much cost was incurred to date. I mean, this is generally how it's done versus a total budget of estimated costs. And when you think about it as an accountant or anybody else, you're thinking, wow, that's theoretically sound because you're matching revenue and cost. I like it. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. One, I have a situation where a bill has nothing to do with when the work is performed and that bill in most software goes immediately to revenue. You don't want that. You want to measure it radically with cost. But here's the problem. This is the fly in the ointment. It is that this is all built on estimates. When you talk about total budgeted costs, it can be very subjective. I dealt in a situation, for example, where a child was taking over the family business and there was a contract, this is going back a few years, and proceeded to overstate margins in every new job that was brought in, every one of them. And of course, when they closed, there were losses incurred. However, there were enough new jobs to make up for it and more than make up for it. So it be, kind of became a Ponzi scheme. And when my buyer was informed of this by me, certainly they realized that they weren't getting very useful information from the financial reporting system. Now, on the other hand, I mean, so this particular person was basically understating budgeted costs. So if we incurred a hundred thousand to date, they were saying only a hundred was left. We're half done. We get to take half the revenue now, but you could do the opposite. You could be tax conscious, for example, and you may be subject to this revenue recognition for your income taxes. And what do you think you'll do? Well, rather than 200,000 total costs, why not make it 300,000? And therefore you're recognizing less revenue. You know, you're doing only 33% of the revenue. And therefore you're going to save on taxes. So it can go either way. And unfortunately, like any budget, a budget of total estimated costs is guaranteed to be wrong. Budgets are never right. It's just a matter how far are they off? How different are they when you ultimately finish from what you thought they would be? So that's kind of, in a nutshell, that's one of the the big things that I'm dealing with on a daily basis was change in revenue recognition. There was also a big change at the end of this year for closely held companies, and that is with leases. And I'm sure you've seen that probably already because for 2022, it became effective. For now, what used to only be disclosed in the footnote, which is your operating lease maturities or basically your future rentals, now is discounted and placed on your balance sheet. And there's a big new intangible asset to offset it called right of use asset. So this is very confusing to people. And unfortunately um, now banks have experience with it. But at first, if you took covenant language, literally it blew a lot of covenants for people. Uh, but fortunately, people are aware of it now and, and they're dealing with it. And also fortunately, it doesn't impact EBITDA. Over in Europe, the same, the equivalent pronouncement resulted in amortization and interest expense appearing on financial statements in place of rent. So rent disappeared and now we have interest in amortization. However, in the United States, we have retained rent and it's pretty much computed the same way as it always has been. So therefore EBITDA doesn't change and rent is still presented the same way. It's just the balance sheet has has blossomed. Exactly. Exactly. 
So those are a number of the issues. I mean, I, and I could go on. I mean, if you want to talk sales tax, you know, the wafer decision was huge. There was also the tax acts of 2017, which influenced how much owners were going to draw as compensation versus as putting through their pass-through entities for the qualified business income deduction. All sorts of issues, you know, that, that came up very recently that impact how I do due diligence and how I think about uh, planning for where the issues might be. Yeah. It's funny because those who are less initiated may think, oh, financial statements, as long as there's not fraud, like it's not right, the numbers are numbers. First of all, the way that things are interpreted, right? I've been involved in deals where there are significant accounting firms, tax lawyers, all these kind of people involved, and they have disagreements about the proper way to characterize things. And I remember, I haven't thought about this for a long time, but it just, I guess it was something that opened my eyes when I was a very young attorney. I used to do back in the day, some public securities work. And so we would literally, this is the days when you physically go to the printer to print a prospectus before they, right? You'd be sitting at the printer's waiting for pages to proofread. And I remember that. And back in the eighties, especially when I got out of school, things were moving very quickly, right? It was a boom, boom time. It was pre-digital. So sometimes you would have sitting at the printers, the clients, the lawyers, the accountants, everybody, because people have to review stuff in real time and they'd be figuring out getting information as they're trying to print the prospectus because the other guys are trying to hit a good opportunity in the market. I'm not, and I'm not saying that doesn't happen now, but we were all physically in a room back then because you had to be physically at the printers. And I remember there were times, this was like literally as a first year associate, basically they're doing proofreading. And I remember there were times where we got some initial numbers and then uh, the investment bankers were writing up what they call the MDNA section, right? The management discussion and analysis and financial condition. That's uh, for people who don't know, that's basically the written description of what the numbers mean, right? To put it at a very high level. And they would say, okay, this particular metric number, whatever it is, went down. Okay, here are the reasons for it, right? But sometimes they would be finishing up their financials for that quarter while we're doing it. And then by the time the accountants got done, it turned out that number didn't go down and went up, right? So now, like in real time, now they're coming up with the reason, the explanation for why it was up. <laughs> they just explained why it went down. <laughs> so that was my sort of first, like opening up the eyes that, hey, wait a second, this is not as interpretation involved is also obviously in that situation, you're sort of presenting to investors. So there's a way that people like to spin it. There's a lot of influences that try to affect how numbers look and how they're interpreted in various situations. You know, it's funny. It reminds me of you, you asked me earlier about my first experience with a deal. I, let me tell you about my first experience with an audit, you know, very experienced CFO. I'm the youngster. I go in there and I'm supposed to ask about the fluctuations and the expenses, exactly what you're describing. Why was it up or down this year? And I went back to annotate everything that I had discussed with this CFO. And I discovered to my horror that I had asked why something was up when it was actually down. I think it was insurance. And I thought I had gotten a reasonable explanation of why it went down and it should have gone up. And I went back to the CFO and he gave me an equally plausible and reasonable explanation why it went the other way. So kind of goes to show a lot of times that you can't rely. And again, we get back to forensic files now, right? We get back to the forensic. You can't rely on what people say. I have found, for example, in due diligence, there are some times that people will tell you what they think you want to hear as opposed to what's actually going on. So for that reason, it's very important for diligence folks like myself 
they actually get their fingers dirty on the records and confirm in with the records that things are actually being processed as you're being told, because otherwise you're going to wind up writing something down in your report that actually isn't true. And so it's very critical to do that. And I don't want to say anything bad about other firms that do this work, but sometimes people don't take the time or they don't have the patience or the knowledge to be able to go back and question what they're being told. And so you have to be very careful on the diligence because there have been times, believe it or not, where what I was told is kind of opposite of what I actually found in the records. So have to be very careful in that. Love it. All right. So before I ask you my final two questions, just give us a little more of an idea of the types of clients that you work with. I mean, we mentioned big categories in terms of some VCs and companies, but are there any size of client, particular industries? Who do you focus on? It's wonderful that you've asked because I would say I do a spectrum. For one thing, Miller Cooper is services everybody but regulated companies or banks. So we don't do insurance companies. We do plenty of financial services, though, for example, brokerage, insurance brokerage companies. As far as my own experience, certainly, as I mentioned, I grew up with an interest in manufacturing, but I now do practically every type of middle market company and have seen them on multiple occasions, whether it's contractors or software or as I mentioned earlier, professional services, these are all things that I see daily, even bioscience I, I worked on. Plenty of manufacturing, pretty much every type of industry. As far as deal size, the range has been in nine figures on a number of recent deals. But then again, all the way to helping searchers, for example. I have a fondness for searchers. And as I mentioned, I speak at a number of schools, most recently Columbia in New York. Uh, speaking to 120 MBA students, but year after year at Northwestern Kellogg, where these folks, I just enjoy working with them and helping them on their first pass. So I'm kind of on the range. And I would say, though, for the most part, the deals that I work on are probably, I'd say, 30 to 100 million EV in that type of range, plenty of smaller and a number of larger ones as well. And as I mentioned, across industries, in about 30% of the time, I'm working for, or I'm introduced by investment bankers or brokers that are selling businesses. And the other 70% of the time is distributed between private equity clients, strategic buyers, sponsors, other types of buyers, for example, ETA. Those are the folks that I work with. So certainly a broad spectrum, I'd consider very much middle market, middle of the road, and very comfortable working in that space. Love it. Just for the audience, you mentioned searchers and I don't have the episode number in front of me, but we had a guest on Bruce Morix, who is a banker who is one of the leading experts in SBA loans for searchers. He's focuses in the search space. And that's a really fascinating space. A lot of folks come out of the military, other folks coming from different places who are looking to start businesses. So just people want to learn more about that. Google and try to find uh, Bruce Morix's episode on the podcast. All right. So listen, we're coming to the end here. Before I ask you my final question, where can people find out more about uh, Mill Cooper and your uh, due diligence services and everything else? Well, Corey, I want to thank you for asking. (laughs) I guess the key is be able to spell my last name. It's Wersema, W-I-E-R-S-E-M-A. But if you look me up on LinkedIn, I love to post. I will post about current issues, current topics. I'll post where I've been speaking. You'll find out a lot about me. I recently posted a couple of charitable events that I sponsored, but I also talk about today's topic. So I would encourage folks, if they'd like to reach out to me, to link with me. 
from there, I love to build relationships with folks and do it that way. Now you can also look up MillerCooper.com, which is my firm. The firm's been around 103 years. Oh. Believe it or not. So we, yeah, we celebrated our hundredth anniversary three years ago. I'm actually the relationship partner on a client that's been with us the whole time. I haven't been with us the whole time, but the client <laughs> has, so which is kind of nice. And you can look us up there. You can find out more about the firm. And again, if you can spell Worsley, you can find my bio on there. So that's a good way to reach out. And I love hearing from, certainly from your listeners, Corey. I'd love to help them if they have questions about due diligence and give them basically if they want to, if they're engaged in deals, for example, I'm happy to sign an NDA and give my two cents as well as scope out what I would do where I see the risks and all of that on an uncharged basis in an effort to become a value part of the team ultimately. And that's kind of how I do it. I mean, it's very difficult to, I realized you want to hire someone based on an interview. You want to see what they're going to do for you. And that's what I try to do on a non-charged basis by taking a preliminary look at deals. Love it. Love it. Bill, my final question of the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means yeah. from oppression from all people in the world to why I've been an entrepreneur and have it out of Boston in decades. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Oh my goodness. Well, I think that freedom is pretty much what you said in terms of the freedom to choose what you're good at. I mean, and do what you'd like to do. And I kind of like the fact that I'm a partner at the firm. So there really isn't someone that I'm reporting to daily. Let's put it that way. And I love that type of freedom. And it's a great way for me to earn the living to enable me to do everything else I'd like to do. So that to me is freedom. And certainly that's what the United States is about. I really love it here. <laughs> Let me put it that way. Love it. Bill Wilson, thank you so much for being a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thanks so much, Corey. Appreciate it. And it's been an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the Mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a Mastermind format. To sign up for the free Mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.